Welcome to the Rev Engine Podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders get clarity on how to align sales and marketing, build a high-performing revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth for their organizations. I'm your host, Jeff Davis, author of award-winning book, Create Togetherness, and founder of Rev Engine. Let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody, it is Jeff Davis, and welcome to another episode of the Rev Engine Podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders align sales and marketing, transform the revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth. I am extremely excited to have somebody on the podcast today that has taught me a lot about sales enablement. Mr. Roderick Jefferson is the quintessential, I'll say, sales enablement guru, expert, professional, executive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to uh, dive into a conversation today about sales enablement so that all of our leaders that are listening can understand a little bit better and understand how it potentially can help them accelerate revenue growth. But before we get into all of that, Mr. Jefferson, I want you to introduce to you to folks that, and I don't think there's going to be many, that don't know you and share a little bit of history about your professional journey. Thank you so much. First of all, it's an honor to be on with you. It's been a while since we've been together. That's so true. That's I've been true. looking forward to being able to reconnect again. In regards to background, first of all, Roderick Jefferson, first and foremost, I'm a sales guy through and through. Started as a BDR, AE, went to President Club, all that fun stuff. Then got promoted to sales leader and promptly turned it down because I realized I love the process far more than I did taking down big deals. And I have been incredibly blessed to work at some of the most incredible and some of the most successful companies on the planet, Oracle, Salesforce, Siebel, eBay, Netscope, etc. So from the smallest to the largest, even took a stint there for about three years where I ran my own consulting gig because I felt like I had just gotten a bit too ivory towered and could no longer in good faith call myself a practitioner. I think we've talked about that once or twice. <laughs> and I think it was great because it gave me an opportunity to do two things. One, work from the smallest to the largest of companies, series A, series B, all the way up to some really incredibly large companies. And then the other piece was it gave me an opportunity to work outside of just tech, where I had really cut my teeth to realize what's going on in financial services and health tech, in med tech, in manufacturing and distribution. They all have the same problem. They just call it something different. And even the definition of enablement over the years, although I am honored to say that I'm the person that cloned the nomenclature sales enablement about 17 years ago. But when I created this, what it's become into, first of all, I never thought it would take off the way to that. And secondly, the definition continues to morph, which on certain days I go, can we get some consistency? And on the other side, it's really different because it depends upon where you are in the maturation cycle of your company of what enablement really means. Yeah. One of the reasons that I really wanted to have you on this platform, you know, we created this platform to really help people think cross-functionally. I think one of the things that we know in all organizations, we get into these silos and people aren't able to rise above and really think across the revenue engine. I love your background because not only have you been in different sizes of organizations, but you've also been across different industries, which I think we can learn so much when we really get in the shoes of another industry because they do things differently. So with that said, not everybody has a sales enablement function. You know that. I mean, amongst tech, it's becoming kind of like par for the course or table stakes, obviously, depending on the size of the organization. But I want you to share with with those listing, those those CEOs or, or revenue leaders that don't have a sales enablement function or are considering adopting one into their organization, what does sales enablement do? 
<laughs> a I know it's question. a loaded question, right? That, uh, well, it's one of those things that you get all the time. And pre-COVID, I think it was very different than where it is now. So pre-COVID, I used to explain it as kind of breaking the complexity of sales into practical application through scalable, repeatable practices that ultimately led to kind of three things. Accelerated speed to revenue, increased seller pro, uh, productivity, and then third, kind of connecting the front and the back of the house together for customers for life. Well, post-COVID, as with everything else, it has shifted. I don't even really give a definition anymore. I kind of explain it this way. Think about an orchestra, Jeff. You've yep. got strings, woodwinds, percussion, all trying to play the right song. And sometimes they're out of tune. Sometimes they're stepping over each other. Sometimes they're just out of fate. Well, the same thing happens inside of a company, right? You've mm -hmm. got your marketing, product marketing, HR, engineering. They're all trying to do the right thing on behalf of the prospect or the customer, but they don't have that one person that steps up until enablement comes in, that taps that stand, all of that noise and chaos now becomes a single beautiful sheet of music. Yeah. We are the hub that spokes out to every part of the organization. And in some cases, we're what I call the translators of dialects and languages. Being able to speak Spanish, French, German, etc., i.e. marketing, product marketing, HR, going to talk to them in their language, not in sales enablement ease, then being able to translate all of their languages back into sales. That's really what we do. I love that. And one of the other things that I think is important that I continue to hear from those I interact with, whether it be a keynote or just in conversation is, let's put myself in a CEO's shoes of an organization. And I'm sitting there and I'm trying to assess if I need a sales enablement function in my organization. What are the pain points? What are the signals? What are the symptoms that I'm going to see that should trigger me to be like, oh, I might need sales enablement. Maybe I should call Roderick or whatever that looks like so that yes. we can really make it real for people. Absolutely. Actually, I'll give you an expand, expanded version of that. With a CEO, what they're looking at is how do we get consistency around forecasting? How do we increase the funnel? How do we accelerate deal velocity? How do we make these things larger and chunkier and do that on a consistent basis? Now, that's just your CEO. When I'm talking to a CRO, I'm talking about the things I said. How do we accelerate that speed to revenue? How do we get more people than I actually have budget for to go to president's club, because that's a great problem to have, right? How do we then identify not just our right ICP of ideal client profile, but how do we now identify, because we don't have enough acronyms, Jeff, our IEP? What's our ideal employee profile for our sellers now? Because oh. as your company changes, as does the profile of your seller. And then there's the final piece. If I'm talking to a CFO, it's a whole different conversation. There's you know, four ways, buckets to bring revenue in. Net new or upsell, cross-sell renewal. There's partners. And then there's a reserve where you've got money. Well, if I'm a CFO, the one thing I never want to have a conversation with is, oh my goodness, I've got to go dip into reserves. So when I'm talking to the CEO, the CRO, and the CFO, what I'm saying is, here's how enablement or productivity or effectiveness can help each of you one, drive, excuse me, impact revenue, because we don't drive unless you carry a bag. How do we then connect all of the lines of business, i.e. bringing in the CMO of saying, how do we make sure that there's consistent messaging and positioning? How are we now impactfully hitting the competitive landscape out there? And then finally, how do we put in place either 
accreditations or certifications, whether mm-hmm. it be BDRs, AEs, leaders, or partners, so that they're all consistently speaking from the same page and they all are consistently able to handle discovery and qualification as well as objection. So you said something interesting about not carrying a bag, which I, I would equate to not carrying quota, right? Correct. Um, as a sales enablement professional, practitioner, executive, et cetera. So help us understand specifically how sales enablement helps accelerate revenue growth, right? The whole premise of our show, the platform is really helping give clarity to our leaders of what tools they have in their toolkit in order to drive growth. So I, mm-hmm. I wanted to to get your your opinion on what are the kind of priorities that, or I'm sorry, what are the kind of top ways that sales enablement can help our leaders do that? Sure. I look at enablement in kind of three buckets. One is content. One is messaging and, and positioning. Okay. And then the other is tool and metrics, right? Okay. So four buckets, I'll say. How do we help it? Let's start with the content of making sure that there is consistent, clear, concise content out there that is available in a single location. Salespeople are not going to go to 14 different places, right? (laughs) So with that content piece, when we are working with marketing, product marketing, et cetera, our job is to sit down and say, you know what? I love the first call pitch, but it gets really fuzzy. And I've listened to it 10 different times. It's been positioned in seven different ways. Mm -hmm. It gets a little fuzzy. How do we either take that out or smooth it out so that it's now in sales speak? Then you go to that mark, that messaging and positioning piece. You go back to sales and you sit them down with marketing and along with product marketing and say, Hey, first question, marketing, has sales actually, actually ever defined what a MQL is or a marketing qualified lead or a sales qualified lead? The problem is, and we've seen it before too many times. Marketing says we've got all of these leads. We're giving over to sales. They never do anything with them. Sales says we get all these leads from marketing, but they all suck. You know why that is? It's because they're not at the same table of clearly defining what that MQL or that SQR of sales qualified lead is. When you get that baseline, now you're working consistently and as a team rather than just kind of throwing things back and forth across the fence. Now, from the messaging and positioning piece, what enablement can do is through accreditations and certifications, We can make sure that everyone is speaking, as I said earlier, from the same page. If you are someone that is a direct go-to-market consistent system in-house, that's easier because now all I have to worry about is the the BDRs, SDRs, the technical folks, and then the sales leaders. Uh Although it sounds easy, it's far from easy. Now, let's say you throw that piece in, you're going to market direct, but you're also going through partners and alliance. Well, now you've got to make sure a couple of things. One, they understand your key differentiation, competitive advantage, and business value. They can go and articulate that. But they also need to understand what's the process of co-selling with the sellers inside so that you're not cross-selling or selling on top. The last piece is around the metric. Or let me go the, to the tools. Now, you've got to have those tools where you get clear and, and consistent forecasting, i.e. Salesforce, etc. You've got a single location where all of your sales-related information. You've got your content management system in a single location. You've got your learning management. Then you've got all of your intelligence platforms so that all of these things all talk and tie together so that you can now, what I call, demystify the darkness with all of those tools. But these tools need to fit where you are again in the maturation cycle. Too many times, enablement people get enamored with shiny, sexy tools. You don't need all of those things. 
what you need are the things that first and foremost, your sellers are asking for. The thing that I always say first and foremost to a sales leader when I start working with them, I'm never going to give you what I think you need. I'm going to listen, understand what's out there, mm-hmm. where the soft spots are, where the pain points are, and then we'll work cohesively as a team to make sure that we can implement all those pieces. The last is the metric. So now what I can do is go back to you and get away from the old school enablement of what I call smiley sheets and butts and seats. Right. <laughs> we we trained 400 people and we're 4.7. Great. That and seven bucks will get you a lot. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now it's how do I show the value of enablement as a differentiator and not as a K, excuse me, as a cost center. And what I mean is now I start talking to you. If I'm talking to a sales leader, that is, and I can go and I can sit down with them and I can say, hmm, what's important to you? It's average deal size, collateral frequency, deal velocity, pipeline creation, number of closed deals, product mix, quota attainment, time to first and second close, and then win or very different if I'm talking to a technical sales engineer or solution consultant. I'm going to talk to them about what? Number of customer meetings, demos, hours spent, number of POCs. Different if I'm talking to customer success. They yeah. care about what? Adoption rates, annual recurring revenue, CUSAT, uh, daily usage, engagement rate. So it really comes down to this, Jay. I've got to be able to talk to each one of them and go back in their words, in their language, to show the value of what we do versus looking at enablement as either A, a cost center, which we are not, or B, the fixers of broken things and broken people, of which we're <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> IT's got that worked out. I'm going to let them keep that The beat. fixer of broken <laughs> things and people. Maybe that should be the new title. <laughs> <laughs> so I like this idea of being a translator because you really have to speak all these languages. So with, with that said, you know, I've advocated in, in my book, Create Togetherness, that, you know, we have regular pipeline meetings between sales and marketing. If we're going to, if we're going to do this thing together, we're going to be aligned we need to be talking and reviewing the pipeline on a, a regular and consistent basis. Absolutely. Uh, I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that our sales enablement person should be in those meetings. With that, Absolutely. Would you, okay. Um, what, they shouldn't be in the meetings. They should be driving the meeting. Aha. Okay. So this is what I was getting into. What role do they play in those pipeline meetings? Let us know how that should all come together. Let me go beyond just pipeline. There's pipeline, there's forecast, all the attribution, all the things we have to talk about, right? Yeah. But enablement, what we should be doing is actually running what I call a, um, bringing them all together on a monthly basis, right? Okay. And kind of circling the, the wagons. And here's why, Jeff, a couple of things. One, you make sure that you outline what the deliverables and goals are for one. Okay. And secondly, you make sure that you identify and you get the nod by looking at everyone's eyes and saying, this is also what you're accountable and responsible for. Mm. Not to me, to the entire group. Nobody wants to come back next meeting and go, oh, sorry, we couldn't hit that. That's not a conversation that you want to have. And also, you don't want to let down the rest of the team. Right. Yeah. So uh, just hit me. Field enablement counts. Okay. So on Field a monthly or a quarterly basis, you bring all those tables, th- those folks together. Marketing, product marketing, product management, engineering, HR, sales, and enablement. And you know okay. what we say? Let me give you an example. We've got an upcoming boot camp where we've just hired. All right, product marketing. Want to make sure we've got the the most current first call pits that we're going to be teaching. Product management. Where are we on the release cycle? Are we still talking about what we talked about last month or a quarter ago? Or do we need to update all of our content as well? When we're talking to sales, 
where are we going back to that IEP from a hiring <laughs> perspective? Has the hiring profile changed? Then I go to HR and I say, hey, from a learning and development perspective, how do we tie the company onboarding and orientation so it doesn't feel disconnected when they get handed off to sales? But instead, it feels like it's a continuous, contiguous flow. So again, back to that orchestra master that I talked about earlier, that yeah. is really the purpose of that field enablement council. So the field enablement council concept is interesting. And I know you talk about that in your book. So I'll, I'll plug yes. your book. I have it on Kindle. It's right, <laughs> Thank you so much. right there, folks. Sales it. enablement 3.0. Go <laughs> get it. Kindle, paperback. I think you have a hardback too, right? Got a hardback as well. Yeah. So uh, I still like to say, so in this meeting, because I want to get into kind of goals and metrics and that sort of thing, because I am very data driven and I feel like a lot of, especially when you talk about alignment, people want to do the warm and fuzzy soft, like, oh, we're in meetings and we talk yeah. to sales and sales talk to marketing. So yeah. in that meeting, which we know, of course, works. No, it doesn't because we're still having this problem and, and the relationship is still dysfunctional. So uh, I'm still working on trying to connect those dots. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You and me both. So in that meeting, would it be appropriate to start talking about goals, metrics, and evaluating those across sales and marketing? I just want to make sure I have the scope of the meeting correct. 100%. That's one of the core tenets of the meeting. Right. Where are we in regards to attribution? Where are we in regards to campaigns? Where are we in regards to events? Now that we're back to the events again live, what's yep. going on there? What are our goals coming out of that? How many meetings are we looking to, to get to? At what level? What's the follow-up look like? What's the ongoing campaigns behind it? Okay. Those are all critical, critical conversations to have because, again, two things happen. One, I just put a stake in the ground. And I said, mm -hmm. this is what I'm going to do. And secondly, it gives both sales and marketing an opportunity to say, what is it that will make this successful? And now let's brainstorm. What are the things that could possibly go wrong and either become a showstopper or inhibit us from hitting our goals and our deliverables? Yeah. And then let's say from a strategic perspective, how do we remove those pieces or at least somewhat alleviate? So then in that meeting, what are kind of like the top line cross-functional metrics that you're talking through? Because what I want to get to for folks that aren't really having these meetings or having less structured meetings is you can get into analysis paralysis and, and stereotypically, and you know this, marketing looks at certain metrics, sales looks at other metrics. They don't always look at the same metrics and the metrics they do look at aren't necessarily goals aren't interdependent, which drives me absolutely crazy. I don't know how you can be driving to the same thing if your goals aren't interdependent but that's another conversation for another podcast. So what is that kind of tier one cross-functional metrics that you're looking at to evaluate the effectiveness of what I call the revenue engine or that lead to, to, to customer process? Yeah, I, I look at things like new pipeline creation. Okay. And also the attribution as to where are these coming from? Are they coming in from net new? Are they coming in from BDRs? Are they coming in from marketing events and campaigns, or are they coming in from our partners and align? Right. Then moves to, now that we understand that kind of top of the funnel, next is for the things that we do bring in, how do we accelerate that deal velocity? Which means we're bringing in the right kind of pipeline, not just for the sake of numbers. So mm -hmm. if it fits our ICP, if it fits what we all agree on as a sales qualified lead after it now has passed through the status of a marketing qualified lead. Now it's how do we accelerate that, right? And 
It's also working with marketing to say, what's the right content in each of the sales stages that you're going to give us to work with and moving through. Then sales and enablement can come back and say, hey, you know what's happening is we're getting stagnated in stage two frequently. I think the problem is we don't have enough content around how to either A, talk directly to our ICP in their words, i.e. marketing, we need some help here, right? Or Mm -hmm. we are talking at the wrong level. So how do we move higher in the organization? We need some help there as well. Or as I said earlier, because we have inconsistency in messaging and positioning. The next piece is how do we then look at and establish some metrics around time to first close and second close, i.e. revenue. Is that because they have or don't have the right type of content coming in? Or is it we don't have um, the ability even to deal with the discovery and qualification piece up front? Or can we not handle objections and, and that piece because we're not getting enough case studies from the market? Does that help, Jeff? It does. And you actually triggered another thought. So when you talked about the different stages and you know, I'm a big proponent of the buyer's journey. Uh, oh, I talk about like, it all well, the time. Exactly you know where I'm going. going. You know where I'm going I with this. Exactly <laughs> where you're going. And, I, and I originally Let's get didn't there. have a plan to talk about it, but I was like, you said the stages. So I think there's a couple ways to go at this. In your mind, what is the most effective way to build a buyer's journey that actually is actionable and usable versus, because sometimes, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but for my marketing colleagues, we create these journeys and they basically come out of our ass and and we don't really do anything with them and it sits on the shelf. So how do you actually build, so two things, an effective buyer's journey and one that people can actually use across the organization outside of marketing? Let's start with, you don't get to build a buyer's journey. Let's start there, right? You do not get to define the buyer's journey. And this is the problem that I've seen so many times in so many companies, both large and small. They go in and try and define the buyer's journey based upon these things. Our sales stages, our sales process, our sales methodology. Let's call it our selling motion. Mm -hmm. Scratch that. And then what happens is then we're going to try and shoehorn the prospect in so that they fit into one of those boxes or stages. Stop it. Go back and have that definite definitive conversation with your buyer and ask them who's part of the buying journey what is buying cycle what does your buying cycle look like is it seasonal um mm-hmm. as well as who buys when do you buy and why do you buy the second question that we've got to ask the buyer because we always find out what's your pain what's going on what's the goals you can go read, read their 10k 10q on that or go listen to their last quarterly announcement yeah no that's for roi purposes Now, if you want to get the other half, that's what I talk about in the book around COI, the cost of an action, right? By not moving forward. Here's how you get that answer. And that is, so Mr. Mrs. Buyer, by having a conversation and a relationship only with our company, how can we help you personally, right? So can we get you a larger seat at the table? Can we get you out of the doghouse? Can we put your name up in light so that you're known? or a matter of how do I get you moved over to the buyer's table now where you may not be. So by leaving that personalized piece out, you're only getting half of the equation of mm-hmm. ROI, but you're leaving COI off the table. So stop trying to shoehorn your buyers into your selling motions. Go understand their buying cycles, 
and buying yeah. process and buying committees as it has become more frequently now. Right. And then and go back and work with your sellers as well as your SE, your technical folks. And now all of these into the sales stages. And I guarantee you that your deal and win rates will go through. So, and, and stereotypically, as I've seen, the buyer's journey is built on a lot of insights from marketing, market research, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, Certainly. maybe interviews, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. So who do you think should really own, and this could be more than one person, but who should be really owning the development of the buyer's journey or optimization or who is that person that keeps that fresh and relevant and true? Your sales leader. Okay. And I'll tell you why. Because if they don't buy into it, they don't own the adoption, the execution, and the positive modeling of it, it'll die on the vine. I don't care what marketing or any other group gives. But what you do is you now constantly do those touch points, like I was talking about in the field enablement council meetings, to make sure that you and, and marketing, you being sales, are on the same page and you're all rowing in the same direction. Just because you're in the boat doesn't mean you're going the same direction. Sometimes <laughs> that thing is just spinning around in circles, as we've both seen. So let's agree upon this piece. Let's hold each other both accountable, but let's also work and row in the same direction. And here's the piece that gets left out. Let's make sure that we, ac- we celebrate this jointly. How many times have you seen a sales leader send out, we just closed the largest in the history of the company? Yes. Say thank you to marketing. Thank you to product marketing. Thank you to product management. Thank you for H- to HR for hiring the right people, et cetera. Thank you to our alliance partners for locking this down. Put everybody's name up in light or yep. put nobody's name up in light. I'm so glad you brought that up because th- there's a, the cultural aspect of uh, uh, there that you identified is if you truly are trying to move into a more collaborative relationship with marketing, aka sales leader, and you never acknowledge them for their contributions, whether you 100% agree with them or not, they are contributing in some way, and I'm assuming this is a decent relationship that's not completely right. dysfunctional. Uh, they're contributing in some way. You might not like the leads, but they're at least getting you something. Because what it does is it signals to sales, sales sellers that if you don't bring them up, then like, I don't need marketing. Why are they there? I don't know what they do. And when you their do bring them up- describes their sales support. Their sales support, no, they're exactly. Not. They're not. They're not and, support. They're a sales partner. Yes. They're not, no, let me take that back. They're a revenue partner. It's not even about sales because the better. same thing happens on the back end with customer support or client services, right? They've got this big upsell, cross-sell, or renewal that they take down, lock it down. I don't think I've ever in my 25 years seen something come out of a customer support leader that says, thank you. We couldn't have closed this without the help. Yeah. Yeah. Start doing it. Acknowledge it. It's the smallest of things. I think one of the one of the the main things that helped me be successful when I transitioned from sales to marketing is coming from, you know, carrying the bag. Mm-hmm. I always thought of sales as my customer. And it, it and it didn't mean that I just did what they told them, what they told me to, but right. I included them up front to get their insights, to get their buy-in, to let them know what I was working on, and it really paid me back in spades because when I would release programs or projects in the field, they sold it for me. Absolutely. It, it, it's about building a culture based upon an attitude of gratitude yeah. and understanding that it's not just about, oh, it takes a village. 
No, it takes a village of people that know and execute their role and then acknowledging them around appreciation once it's done. Yeah. I love it. Because like with any human, if I keep doing something and doing something, it becomes expected. And then it's very easy for me to stop doing it if I don't feel appreciated or a part of the tribe. Those are facts. Same thing happens in in corporate. Yeah. Yeah. People get taken for granted. Absolutely. So when you think about the revenue engine, uh, I think there's a lot of digital capabilities that need to be transformed, upgraded, leveled up. Specifically around, let's focus on sales, because I know we're still having this conversation about what I call digital first selling, digital selling, virtual selling, whatever you want to call it. I think we're at a point now, it's just called selling, uh, even though mm-hmm. we still try to delineate it. And, and I, I don't know that all sales leaders are 100% on board. I'm mm-hmm. curious, what role does sales enablement play in implementing those capabilities into, let's keep it just focused on sales. Like, what does that look like? Because I know, obviously, there's a responsibility for sales enablement stereotypically around coaching and training. How do you guys look at digital capabilities and helping sellers sell more, a more modern way? Well, I think it starts with the fact that it's time to recalibrate. We all know we can't do things the way we used to do them, Jeff. And so I say, put a stake in the ground and say, look, first and foremost, go back and reassess your current deal customer profile and your buyer profiles. Mm-hmm. to see how those have shifted and then sales work with marketing to adjust those. That means that your case studies may be out of date. That means that your ICP may have changed altogether. So the way that you're going out and messaging and positioning just doesn't play anymore. The next is, and we just talked about this, go with and sit down with marketing, articulate and communicate what you've learned to be the current version of the buyer's journey. And then how do you both attack that joint? The next piece is kind of that uh, enablement council we talked about. Coordinate between sales, HR, marketing, and enablement to reassess your current ideal employee profile as well as your customer profile. Yeah. The next piece is then realign your sales methodology, state your sales stages, motions, assets, and collateral so that it now aligns with the buyer's journey versus then trying to align and shoehorn the buyer into your piece, right? Yeah. Um, And last and most importantly is then collaborate with sales, marketing, product marketing, product management, et cetera, to build those updated processes, programs, platforms, and align and tie everything back to revenue-focused metric that, again, aligns back to the buyer's journey. Related question, what would you share with a sales leader that is struggling with implementing digital selling into their sales motion? So not so much, they're convinced that we need to do it. They may even have invested in the the technology, but they're struggling. I think it's like from the cultural standpoint and embedding it in the actual sales motion. What advice would you give them? Oh, that's an easy one. Become the model of it because what's important to your manager is imperative to you. Most of the time, these things don't get implemented or adopted or strong uptake because it's simple. The top of the food chain and the sales leader doesn't go and use it the way that it should be used as a model. If I know that my example, assets and let's call Salesforce for a second. If I know that my manager would prefer or is still using spreadsheets, et cetera, or some other tool. I'm not going to go put my stuff into Salesforce because they're never going to check it, right? (laughs) So the old inspect what you expect, right? But if I know that 
they're saying and they're endorsing and validating the digital assets that are out there and or the process and they're living it every day, what am I more apt to do, Jeff? I'm going yeah. to go do it because I can't hide. Yeah. So it really starts at the top of the food chain. When a sales leader owns, again, the adoption, the execution, and the positive modeling of any digital asset, process, program, platform, etc., and I'll say collectively, mm-hmm. adoption goes through the roof, as well as closed deals goes up. The increase of deal size goes up. Why? Because every week, every two weeks, when I do my forecast, I got to come in and everything better be real. It better be validated and it, it better pass the sniff test. Yeah. And it all starts with the, the top of the food chain in sales. And I think too, and I'd love to get your opinion on this one. I think it's a hundred percent true. And I think when senior leaders adopt a new technology or adopt a new methodology and they are open with, they're not going to always get it a hundred percent right. And they're learning mm-hmm. as well. It's iterative. Yeah. I think that people are more junior people are more open to say like, oh, well, you know, my SVP is not going to get a hundred percent right either. And it's okay for me to like make mistakes as well. I think it's when you try to come in and either a, to your point, you don't model behavior at all and you don't do it. That doesn't work. And B, when you just pretend like you're perfect and you're like, oh, I know this yeah. down and, and, and but no one's coaching anybody on how to like yeah. actually use the stuff. Well, th- well, that's a manager though, Jeff, right? And, and generally a micromanager, which yeah. in, in my entire life, I've never heard that used in a positive frame, right? No. It's when you have a true leader that A, they screw up and, and they're not afraid to share that because now it's a learning opportunity. For right. one second, when they out of the gate, your people, I'm going to give you opportunity and leeway to make mistakes because I screw up every day, yeah. even as a leader. Yeah. And so when you do that, but then when you take those as learning opportunities, guess what happens? They're more apt to come to you and say, hey, I may not have nailed this all the way. How could I have done this better next time? Or I was completely off, way off base. Yeah. And I think that when you start having conversations instead of teaching sellers how to give presentations, everything shifts. Yeah. Well, I heard you say something years ago that for for some reason really stuck with me. And and it's so like not in my space, but when you said it, it just, it sparked something in me. So, and if I get this wrong, please correct me. I think you said you train animals and you enable people. Was that correct? Absolutely. Oh, you nailed it. You got to tell, tell people what that means. Cause like, literally I'm not even kidding you. You said it. And I, I stopped talking. Cause I was like, hold on a second. Let me digest and understand what this means. Tell people what that means. When I say that, what I'm talking about really is that when, when you teach an animal or, or a person to just train, it's only giving them a component, right? And I'm not teaching people how to roll over or sit. I want to actually take them on a journey. Right. And it's kind of the difference between learning and enablement. Right. And so when I I do, I I always look at training as kind of a one time spot, a sprint, if you will, versus enablement being a marathon. So I don't want to just teach you one thing and then you go away and there's no long tail behind it or there's no reinforcement to it. Mm -hmm. As opposed to when I think about enablement, I'm thinking about let's go all the way back to the talent acquisition and assessment component of helping to select that new IEP that I talked about. Right. The next piece is talking about onboarding from a role-specific specific piece 
as well as bringing everyone collectively together, not just as a cohort or as a selling team, but so that it magnifies the value that each one of those different components bring, whether it be marketing, BDRs, solution consultants, alliance, leaders, etc. Everybody plays a role. And now when you do that collectively, you start to build the strength of that cohort and they understand and appreciate the value. The next piece is the continuing education that I call everboarding. And that's the business acumen piece where we're constantly sharpening the sword for our people. And then the next stage is coaching and reinforcement. Because so many times we work with our new hires or we're working with our, our individual contributors, but who's actually up-leveling and upticking the leaders? Now, I'm not talking about L&D where you're doing managing legally, ethically, all the compliance things. I mean, yeah. really about their role. The next step is measurements, as I talked about earlier. Not the smiley sheets and butts and seats, but the ones that really impact revenue. And then finally, it's about building out a succession plan so that we are creating more leaders and less managers. So now I'm not talking about a spot workshop or an accreditation or a training. I'm talking about the entire learner's journey now that yeah. ties back again. Well, and you know, I can talk about this, this subject f- with you for hours. <laughs> oh, I, I think that sales enablement professionals have a, a profound role in aligning sales and marketing and really have a unique position in the organization to, to, to make that happen, to break down the silos. As we close out, uh, two final questions for you, sir, because again, I don't, I don't know if people want to be on the podcast with us for two hours. Any final words for revenue leaders that are looking to transform the revenue engine and want to leverage the, the sales enablement function or, or bring it into the organization? And then as you close that out, uh, let folks know where they can find you on social. Yeah, the first is taking time to really understanding now what enablement is beyond just the training piece. Really taking a serious assessment with your other internal lines of business and your partners of it is time to really delve into enablement and and weave it into the fabric of the company, not just something that you're doing sporadically or inconsistent. The next piece is, and I go back to this a lot, make sure that when they're owning that accountability, that ownership, that execution, that you're doing it as a team collectively and that you do have that strong enablement leader that's going to be that orchestra master and that translator of of language and dialects that we talked about earlier. And then finally, I want to reiterate something I said earlier. When things go well, give love to everybody that was a part of it. Yeah. Love it. Great way to close out. And if we want to follow up, and I know people will want to uh, follow up with you uh, across social, how can folks find you? Jeff, I, I've said it a number of times when we have conversations. If you can't find me on social, you're not really trying. This <laughs> <laughs> um, is probably really because, true, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I pride myself in staying active out there and, yeah. and trying to share some thought leadership and some best practices and things of that sort. So you can find me on LinkedIn at Roderick Jefferson, on Twitter at The Voice of Rod, as well as on Instagram, Roderick underscore J underscore Associates. You can find me on my website at Roderick Jefferson and Associates. Or as we talked about earlier, you can find the bestseller up on Amazon. There it is. There it is. Well, Roderick Jefferson, always a pleasure. Thank you for your time and looking forward to staying connected and hopefully having you back on the show. Absolutely honored. All right. You take it easy. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Rev Engine podcast. 
I hope today's episode provided you with some actionable insights that will help you begin the process of transforming your organization to a high-performing revenue engine. If you found today's episode valuable, we ask that you support the show's growth in three ways. First, share the episode with your friends and colleagues. Second, follow me on social media at Meet Jeff Davis on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. And finally, give us feedback on who you'd like to see on the show next. That's all for this episode. We look forward to having you join us next time where we continue the conversation on how to build a high-performing revenue engine.